Case file number 6.03. Cyber miseducation. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. He, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. Oh, and, and the other one. The other one. Y Ymir. No, he's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Today's episode, I'm going to go kind of off uh, script, off kilter of what we normally do, especially myself. Okay. It's not about CIA history or any like uh, random spy events and stuff like that. But I thought, I feel like we've touched about this in a few episodes, but information security education, where it is, what the value of it is, um, should people seek out degrees in it? Shouldn't they? Like, you know, all that stuff. I figured we kind of bounce around topic to topic and just kind of, you know, chat about it. The very first thing that comes to mind is is a conversation that my SOC team lead and I had a little while back that having a master's degree in information security is almost a negative qualification. Ah, <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> and one point behind the thing that we said jokingly is that there are a lot of people that have done all the academic work and they understand a lot of the policy requirements and they understand a lot of the compliance paperwork and ideas, but they don't have any hands-on experience with not just the technical exploit stuff, but also the hands-on running of things that aren't even necessarily as deep into vulnerability under uh, an attack pattern understanding, like not red team or, or SOC analysis, but like uh, just vulnerability management. You know, you could talk about some of this compliance stuff all day, but in the end, it comes down to you're making spreadsheets and you're making sure that they're shared and you're pinging people and you're, and you're interacting with the vendor in, and doing things that just never came up in the classes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that was um, like the, the first kind of starting thing was like, why, why this topic? And that's... I think one of the primary motivators that I've seen, one, I taught um, yeah. courses in this. And, you know, I went to school for this. I have a, a master's degree and going for the doctor and all that crap. But, you know, I could see glaring issues even when I was going to school for it. Um, and I wasn't even in information security at the time. Like, you know, that, it was a brand new thing. To, I just stumbled upon it. And even I could be like, this seems like the curriculum isn't set up the correct way and things are just kind of out of whack. Yeah. In fact, I remember you and I talking um, before we talked as much as we do now with the podcast and everything, when you were teaching a class on snort and I having had a lot of experience with snort 
was asking you about some of the technical implementation stuff that I know even a lot of snort admins don't see. There's a thresholds file that allows you to tune how often you, you see particular signatures in snort. And that's like a really important mechanism for tuning. And it wasn't in your curriculum. You hadn't even heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this is supposed to be a college level class on a piece of software that if we're entirely honest about what Snort does is not that complicated. No. And like when I took the course on Snort, you know, I was like, oh, this is, this is really cool. Like all these rules and everything because it was brand new to me. And then having mm -hmm. gone out of the field and coming back and like having conversed with you and everything, looking back at it going, you know, this is a mile wide and like a foot deep. So like for, for the current state of things, um, when it comes to college education, at least when I was teaching, which was only roughly like three, four years ago that I stopped doing that. It's one, the degree program required on paper that you had a background in networking. Mm. That, that was not the case. They just let anyone in because it's, it's a, it's a huge money-making thing for colleges and colleges are really only concerned about making money, uh, enrolling as many students as they can. And I hated the fact that they promised all these students like, oh, you're going to be working for the NSA. You're going to be working for these like Fortune 500 companies. Even that, I mean, hiring as tier one SOC people, tier one vulnerability management people, uh, which to me is the entry level in security. And I don't feel like those are entry level jobs. I feel like those are your first jobs after you've worked something like a help desk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you have an associate's degree. Maybe you came in. Maybe you don't have any um, post-secondary education. I think the one thing I really want to say about that, as I think I've said before, and I know that it's in my bio, I'm self-educated. I took college classes for like a year before I dropped out and did IT full-time. I grew up with computers. It was it was an easy stepping stone for me to make because my, I kind of, I didn't quite flunk out of college, but I I ran out before the before the foot hit me. Um, <laughs> and that has to do with, you know, not just acumen, but the ability to do homework. And I didn't really learn how to work in earnest until I was working on, like I had a career until I really built a career. Yeah, homework's a scam. I think there's a lot to say about that. I, I, the times that I've gone back to college and decided it's not worthwhile for where I am in my career, mm -hmm. I have been like, the work is trivially easy compared to what I do at my job. Yeah, yeah. But the thing that I was going to say, because, you know, can't, I can't make a point without making three tangential points, um, is uh, there was a guy I used to work with on our engineering team. And he went to, uh, and I'm going to even shout out the program, UAT, University of Advanced Technology. They're in Phoenix. Okay. Um, they're, they're a for-profit college. I remember hearing about them because they had a booth at DEF CON. Mm. for a, for a few for a handful of years and I had talked to them but this guy had come from that program and he was really sharp and part of what the reason he was so sharp and even just being out of college had a much better uh, understanding of the lay of the cybersecurity landscape than a lot of folks that I'd worked with even with a few years of experience was that he lived in their forensics lab mm, okay he had, like he went to a program that had good resources right and yeah, then yeah. because he was excited about it because that's what because he was really interested in it he had spent a ton of his own time concentrating on this stuff and got a lot more out of the program than just what the classes had to offer that's one major thing is having been on the professor side 
it, it was very easy to kind of like pick out the students that like were in it just because okay this is the high paying field of the you know the time that's being speculated and some advisor was just like ah, i just jump into this field uh it's better than going for general studies you know like you don't have to be like oh okay like cybersecurity that's the thing i want like jump into it and just have this like you know this knack for it, this love for it, like you know before you even get invested for me i didn't even know about information security and mm-hmm. until i just happened to fall into these classes because i signed up for a different degree and they didn't offer those courses and just threw me into the information security <laughs> department mm-hmm. and i was like oh shit this is actually really fun i really enjoy this um but you know it takes a certain state of mind i think to enjoy this stuff because you are always going to be learning it's not like you know, I feel like most professions are always learning, but like, you know, doctors, lawyers, there's a set amount of skills that, okay, this is concrete. A few new things might come up during your career, but these are the skills you need to know. I could count the paradigm shifts that I've had to go through. And the reason that I have the job that I have is not because is not just because I keep up with security. I've done my time as a database administrator, a Linux administrator, a Windows administrator, a network admin, and a firewall admin. Being good at security also means having a set of ancillary skills, both because you need the context for what's happening in the security world with each of those technologies. But a lot of times, I think this is less true than it used to be, but I still think it's very important, is you get caught kind of building your own, some of your own tools, creating some of your own integration between systems. Even now with SOAR technologies where you used to have to all write it all yourself, you still have to be able to write or at least modify the code that makes those things happen. A lot of stuff that I'm doing now or things that are kind of on my roadmap of things to mess with are advanced uses of Splunk and machine learning stuff. We're making some progress there at my current spot. But the next thing after that is going to be extracting out of network information and Active Directory information and putting it into a graph database and starting to do analysis from there. And that's going to be built from whole cloth. There aren't products that'll just do that for me. Right, yeah. Actually, the project that I submitted for my master's capstone, I needed a connection broker for our VDI environment and none of the current ones on the market fit what we needed. We tested out uh, Horizon View, No Machine, uh, LeoStream, all these other ones. Mm-hmm. Most of them would not even allow you to map the systems that you were connecting to to just a specific group. And on top of that, yeah. would if someone was using the system, would not strike it from the uh, you know the menu, so you yeah. weren't like overlapping on each other. So yeah, I they didn't have a pool type approach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, it was driving my my mission crazy. So I just decided to teach myself, you know, a very sketchy version of like python 3 like by no means am i a software engineer but i cobbled together something and got it to work for the mission exactly how they wanted it and uh they're still using it it's been six years now Uh, written middleware and parsers for things that should have been already in the sim and they weren't in fact i mean this was a long time ago no longer a relevant thing but absolutely the thing that happened we had bought a sim in order to deal with firewall walks from the Cisco platform. This was right right actually at the cusp between PIX and ASA. They told us to buy a couple of 2U Sun, uh, Sun systems, which were reasonably powerful, but I don't remember the specs off the top of my head because this was a very long time ago. It was like 2003. Um, but 
it couldn't keep up with our event rate. It just wouldn't. And me and one other guy on our team, he was a better Perl programmer than me, or at least better at front ends. And I knew some database stuff and I'm better at parsers than, than, than he was. And between the two of us, we wrote a system that parsed the, the PIX logs uh, into a database that we designed and a front end that analyzed it. Uh, and we deployed it on the exact same hardware as the, as the uh, SIM and were as able to keep up with it. And we had to do that as a no budget project because there was no more budget left. Right. Yeah, yeah. And on the, on the degree side of things like for college, I think one of the major issues is this field moves light and quick. Yes. Um, things change, you know, in the span of a month, a certain software, like a certain piece of software could be the top tier best piece for this thing. And then a month later you find out, Oh, actually there was this huge vulnerability it's horrible and it just gets chucked in the trash. There's no way to fix it. And now you're relearning, you know, all of this stuff. I think it's equivalent to when I, when I first went to college, I was doing graphic design. One of my courses was in web development and they began the course and 70% of the course was teaching how to just write in HTML, pure HTML. The final portion was using cascading style sheets. This was at the point where like, CSS was the default. No one wrote just pure HTML code anymore. That was not a thing. They taught you. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. In fact, I've heard you tell the story before, so I didn't need yeah, to yeah. cut you off. <laughs> but uh, it's absolutely true that academia is not usually used to changing as fast as the information security world does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It took five years or less to go from traditional relational database bound sims to essentially Splunk and Elasticsearch. Mm -hmm. The entire world of IDS is being turned on its head right now with uh, intrusion or endpoint detection response systems at the endpoints. And mm -hmm. turns out that was kind of a, hey, if you have security budget to spend, spend it. Um, it like that's a good place to spend it. Uh, that EDR was not a huge priority for a lot of organizations. Well, now when your boundary is no longer in front of all of your endpoints because everybody's working from home you now need an endpoint suite like that yeah and so while the technology had been developing for a while it went from a niche thing that the top end of security practice used to the thing that everybody that has a reasonable amount of security budget needs to spend money on mm -hmm. and i think you've mentioned you mentioned waza i think well one or two episodes ago yeah 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 with something like waza the barrier to entry to getting EDR capabilities went way down for smaller, organiz smaller organizations. And I think that, and that turns you on your head. If you're, if you're used to looking for antivirus stuff and all of a sudden you have Waza, you totally have to change the way that you look at how you uh, protect your endpoints, how, uh, what you can get out and what you can out of the detection capability of what you can react to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've been asked this question like a few times um, from students. And I've also been like, you know, pinged on LinkedIn uh, multiple times for like teaching boot camps. And people ask me like, like, oh, should I go for the degree or should I just go sit for the boot camp? And, you know, the cost association between the two um, boot camps might run you like three, five grand maybe for, mm -hmm. you know, a week, weekend, whatever, you know, versus a degree that you're looking at $70,000 plus because college is just astronomically expensive and getting more and more expensive. Um, yeah. 
and then on top of that compounding interest rates, uh, you're going to be paying back 140 grand. You know, I was very lucky. I did my bachelor's and my master's and my doctorate currently through my employer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not, that's not advice I can give everyone because, you know, you have to get into the field and find someone that would actually pay for that. And that's not an easy thing. I got extremely lucky in that regard. But I think one benefit to me was I went to a college called Western Governors University. Um, And if this podcast ever, you know, kicks off um, and they start getting new students because of this episode, uh, they should give me some kickbacks. (laughs) But no, I mean, I did a year of Western Governors, as Mm. you know. That's right, Um, yeah. And I think that they're the best deal out there. But frankly, at least the classes I took and the classes I took were general studies. And I'm already 25 years into a career and a pretty avid reader outside of even information security stuff. Mm -hmm. I found the curriculum content unchallenging. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be perfectly frank, what you learn at any college is actually going to pale in comparison to what you could just learn on YouTube. God, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but you know, there's a great guy that I watched his Linux plus prep courses. Yeah. Or you listen know. to this podcast for seeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that too. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um, Sorry. <laughs> but like the, the thing, the thing that Western governors afforded me was a lot of the courses ended with you going to sit for a certification exam. Yes, And that was just resume fodder because I didn't have any real world experience on my resume, getting as many certifications that kind of mattered to what I was applying for was critical. And, you know, I, I saw a lot of good feedback when I started just kind of dumping all these certificates on my LinkedIn profile of, you know, recruiters and everyone kind of reaching out, hitting on that. Or when I was going in for interviews, they'd point out that stuff and, you know, ask me about the exam and stuff like that. So a really good way of getting your foot in the door. And, you know, that coupled with the degree, I don't know if it's still the case. I think it's still the case. Like most government jobs require at least a bachelor's. So government jobs don't require it anymore. This is, that's actually been a, a fairly recent development that mm, like, okay. it's usually experience in lieu of. And right, right, right. my personal experience thus far is that that hasn't impacted the hiring practices as much as it should. I've definitely seen situations where somebody has worked as a contractor, a federal job will open up somewhere adjacent and that person is known. Right. And they are more likely to make it to the interview stage. But going into like USA jobs, that's a different thing. And then I could tell you about that contractor life, people responding for requests for proposal, you know, saying, this is how we're going to build your sock for you or provide personnel. And in that, there is a thing called key personnel, the people that are going to really be the coordination of, the, of that work. And there's requirements attached to how, that those people actually spend time on that contract for a certain amount of time, that kind of thing. To be key personnel pretty much requires you to have a degree. One of yeah. the things that makes me somewhat less valuable to the kinds of companies that I've worked for for most of my career is that I've had a CISSP since 2004, mm-hmm. but because I don't have a degree, I haven't been listed as key personnel, except very rarely and very recently. Right, right. Uh, so I mean, it's not it's not black and white, but it does make a difference. And I can tell you that I know for a fact that there are doors that have not been opened for me because I haven't had a degree. 
regardless yeah. of my level of experience, regardless of what I had actually already done for organizations that, that I've worked for. Yeah, like uh, I had a coworker kind of in the same boat as you. Uh, no degree, tons of experience, crazy smart uh, guy, like, you know, Linux storage stuff. Like he was the pinnacle. Um, but because he didn't have a degree, he was a sub to a subcontractor. Um, and that's just kind of where he had to sit because, yeah, like he couldn't be listed as key personnel and the main contractor required that. I think there, there's, there's something else to say there. You're a rarity in cybersecurity probably a lot rarer than people like me who are completely self-educated, which is that you have degrees in cybersecurity <laughs> as a real world matter. Even the people with college degrees tend not to have them in college in, in cybersecurity. That's slowly changing as there are more cybersecurity programs, but a lot of those cybersecurity programs, well, just like you said, there, there's a lot of, places that have programs because that's where the job market is but mm -hmm. don't have any real interest or focus on it and they don't have a professorship either by the professor's interest or the resources they're given that really develop a program that nurtures that cutting edge kind of set of uh of skills yeah yeah exactly i <laughs> i caught a lot of flack when i was a professor i think we've discussed this like off off pod before because my manner of teaching was everything was open book i didn't mean, prescribe to the notion that you know you need to memorize all these things because i know for a fact like when i log into system and i'm running like basic commands i have to look them up again because i forget what they were because i haven't used what them. what i like, really do google yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and you know it kind of it irritated some of my students to basically be like okay here's here's an open book a midterm exam take it home figure out these these questions and you know answer them using google using whatever resources you can find and it was kind of like well why why am i paying you know to go to college um if it's just google and my answer was always like basically just for the the printed out degree um and you know for someone that's been where you were to kind of help you and guide you like the one the one uh, example i always cite to people is that i took a class and like intro to hacking or something like that. And the guy sitting next to me complained nonstop that a professor had us using Google to like find certain things. Then when I graduated and I was working for a managed service provider, they got a call from some organization whose firewall had crapped out and they didn't know what was going on and asked if I could help. It was, it was that other student was working for the, the company and had no idea what's going on. I Googled the error code, found out was wrong and, you know, gave him the solution like it's super easy it was like yeah. you know for stack overflow um return but right well I, I think that we talked about this earlier i don't remember if it was on pod or off and my counterpoint to that is like googling is fine but knowing what to search for knowing search terms and knowing the context of what's being said and how to apply it rather than just cutting and pasting straight out of stack stack overflow is where that experience really comes in yeah i will i will cite so there's a tool you're probably familiar with like the CIS benchmarks. Mm -hmm. You know, you run them against your system. They give you a score, um, you know, I think up to like 100% if you match all mm -hmm. the criteria. Some of the stuff is just kind of, you know, asinine, like having to multi-partition every single, you know, thing. Right, which is no longer the standard practice uh, nowadays, in especially in any kind of virtualized environment. Exactly. However, some of the things they suggest will literally brick your system. 
um, yes, including like changing permissions and ownership on like Etsy password and Etsy shadow um, and Etsy groups. Uh, so you only, the only person that can read them is root. Yeah. That's only for very specific situations, like appliance type systems might use a configuration like that. You yeah, exactly. Some of it off. I remember getting dinged because somebody's CIS benchmark was saying that I had IPv6 enabled. I'm like, but that's our networking standard is to be stacked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so like the same thing you were saying, like with Google, it's like you can take this and apply hundred percent to your system and be like, cool, give give me a raise, please. But you have 100%, just bricked, gold star. Yeah, you've yeah. just bricked your entire system and now no one can log in. Um so yeah, knowing knowing what to do is definitely good. Well, so thing. the real world is open book. It's like doing arithmetic versus word problems. Just because you can search, it doesn't mean that you can that you can look for the for the right stuff. Yeah, 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 exactly. And like even in the case of Stack Overflow, um, you know, there'll be like multiple responses, all of them differing. The one that's marked the top, I have you know maybe fifty fifty um, mm -hmm. present with that. That that's usually not the the one answer that I need. It's usually like someone else further down. I, I don't want to lose uh, the, this particular point, which is kind of the crux between college and not college in my mind, assuming all of the things are right. College has you dedicating time and has people around you that are working on the same stuff as you are. And maybe you're competitive with them. Maybe you're working with them on it, but that set of people helps drive you being solo on this stuff. Driving yourself takes more from you. It requires more from you. Mm -hmm. um, you have some, ability to decide what to concentrate on and when I got my first exposure to firewalls very early on. And then I didn't really work with them again until a little bit down the road. And that point I studied a lot more about network level security stuff. Yeah. Yeah. At that point in time, when I was first really doing a lot of security stuff, a lot of security was really talking about active directory security. Mm-hmm. Like that was the concentration. And I, and I haven't done a ton of that since. You've heard me do episodes on AD security. It hasn't exactly all gone away. <laughs> but what you work on, whether you're specifically studying something in particular, is up to you. And it's easy to take a break. And it's easy to keep taking breaks. And there's a lot of levels in cybersecurity. You can be a tier two analyst and in a lot of places in the country, support a family on that salary and just keep up as things change. And that doesn't take nearly as much work as continuing to improve and trying to move up the ladder to become an engineer, a cloud engineer, a cloud architect, a security architect. You can land at a plateau and make your own decisions about that. But to advance, it takes a lot to go from a place where you're at your kind of uh, larval techie, you can build your own computer. You've done your own, you've done some tweaking of windows and stuff mm -hmm. for your own use and gaming and whatnot to being a cybersecurity person. You can do that. The resources are there, but yeah, yeah. you have to spend some dedicated time. I mean, the reason that, and I know that they weren't the most exciting episodes, but we did all of those episodes on the fundamentals of protocols and stuff. Mm -hmm. to give the, our listeners the ability to go back and re-listen to things about how email works, how SMTP works, because the number of people that the first 
window into the back end of the whole internet is when I go and I hit F12 and show them the developer's tools in their browser. And it's like, no, this is the actual request that you're making. Right, yeah, yeah. Like it's, yeah. I've seen it on people's face so many times. They're just like, mind's blown that you can just see that. And then it's like, yeah, this is the first step. There's so much more going on. It's not just what you what you can see. It's things that help you deal with the billions of packets. My current implementation, we log somewhere between one and two billion events a day. Mm-hmm. And we're not even that big. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a huge amount of technique around filtering that stuff, signature-based detection, how to model that data in useful ways so that you can take the needles out of that haystack or mm-hmm. more correctly, that needle out of that pile of needles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And like your point on like going to college, being around people, you know, it never was the case, but like Hollywood would love to portray like, you know, hackers, security people as like, you know, like basement dwelling can't have no social skills whatsoever. But there is something to say to, you know, be around people you know, day in, day out while you're doing this thing, you will develop certain social skills. You will develop certain contacts. You know, you're going to make friends in college. They're going to go off, get jobs certain places. You're going to graduate, start looking for jobs. They might already have one and say like, hey, I know you. I Your, your stuff was good. Come on over. We got to help this position. And I've absolutely seen the flip side. Um, in fact, I've done the flip side where people that I have had social contact with that I knew were in IT, either when I was doing you know help desk admin stuff or in security being able to bring people in yeah will help you advance your career yes both sides are 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 advantaged by those social connections networking like the other kind of networking mm-hmm. but like there's also something to be said cuz you know geeks are a cantankerous lot working around and like having to convince people rather than, you know, just coming to the conclusion yourself will make you better at doing research, at getting conclusive evidence. Yeah, yeah, that is a very good point. There have been many times in my career so far that, like, I have developed a solution that I thought was great. You know, I had, it, like the broker that I was talking about, my initial pass at the broker had a lot to be desired. Um, it needed input from other people, like, can you do this? Can you do this? A lot of discussion of, like, we could, but then, you know, the X, Y, and Z would factor in. I don't think that's the best thing. Let's try this thing instead. And you're bouncing ideas off each other constantly. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what you get at college, especially like if you're doing group assignments, like bouncing stuff. No one has the exact right answer. Like you need to kind of like come together and develop one. Yeah. And working in a team, that's another good point. This was a tough lesson for me and not that long ago. Just because you can do any job on a project doesn't mean you can do every job on a project. Yeah, knowing knowing your limits is, is huge, too. Yeah, that was a big learn for me. The project wasn't even that many people, but they were all senior engineers. And trying to do the whole lift myself would have been impossible. Right. Like, they had budgeted the number of people that, they, that were going to do it. And I was, there was a certain amount of ego in it. And I was like, hey, I could do this. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that I couldn't. Even if you had given me more time, keeping all the things straight that need to be kept straight, I wouldn't have been able to keep everything in RAM, quote unquote, in order to accomplish things. I had to do my part and hand it off. Yeah, yeah. It's a very good way to kind of get that ego check early on of like, you're not Superman, you have limitations, be they just like, you know, basic knowledge and understanding, time management skills, or 
you know, this is just well and above and beyond what you can handle, but like you can do your part and then, yeah, like hand it off to the other people that need to like carry it on the way. So that actually uh, reminds me of another point that I make to folks that I bring on and start integrating in my team, especially the ones that are coming from a college background, which is that due dates are less important than the quality of the work. We expect a work we can make allowances for time when it takes a longer, longer period of time. Yeah. That is a difference in college. When I'm delivering for a customer, there's an expectation for what our delivery standards are, but also there's a reason why those delivery standards are higher. Mailing it in usually means more work down the road. You'll hear the term technical debt. And in a lot of cases, what technical debt is, is exactly that. Mm-hmm. Either a lack of foresight or somebody not doing the ancillary work that would make dealing with the follow-up easier. Yeah. I think we, we've touched on like a lot of the stuff, but like I'll pose a question to you and then I'll answer it too. Or like, what are, what are the things you would want to see from a fresh out if they were coming into your environment? So things that I would love to see are having worked local cyber conventions, like even just being an usher at, B- at the local B-sides mm-hmm. would be great. It would be fantastic to have some reference to some open source project that they'd contributed to. These would be things that would instantly move you to the very top of my list. But the way that I usually interview is I have a handful of questions usually about the internet. And frankly, you could, if you pay close attention to some of the episodes that we've done, you might be able to to just do this. But I will ask about, can you describe how DNS resolution works, both forwards and backwards? Break down an HTTP request or an SSL handshake. I don't need you to answer every one of those questions, but I need you to answer at least one of them with some knowledge and understanding. Um, even for intermediate, moderately senior folks, what I'm aiming to do in an interview is find out what you're deepest in and how deep you are, because I want to get what you're best at and see how deep you, what you could do there. You could probably do to another subject. Mm-hmm. If it was all cursory stuff, if you didn't learn anything from something, i not going to be able to make as much use of you as frankly that chair requires i have too many things going on i have to delegate things to analysts and you know some of that is helping them develop but some of that's getting the work done that that you know the contract calls for that's off the top of my head the stuff that i really look for for me because i've I've actually done a few interviews for my missions uh just in the past month and a half The, the main one for me is always just seeing that they want to learn um mm-hmm. and kind of like continue to learn like i like i'll, I'll ask about interview advice uh, here in a little bit but like when i'm doing an interview i don't expect them to know all the random crazy tools i use because i use a lot of like mm-hmm. you know like other tools that just kind of like you don't you don't learn about a college you might not have any familiarity with them but when mm-hmm. i tell them what the tool is and what we're using in our environment i see that they're like oh like how do you spell that like you know they want to look up more information on that that right there is a huge green flag of okay mm-hmm. this person clearly if i sat them down and told them like in our environment we have x y and z they would go off learn as much as they can about that might have some questions for me and come back and be ready to move on if instead i'm just met with oh what do you use that and not this I mean, typically the answer is funding. Uh, NASA doesn't have money, so we <laughs> we do what we can. Most organizations I've worked for spend their money in some places and not others. Even in the best of circumstances, the best places I've seen have been like that. 
And I will tell you the place that had the most funding that I worked at had a major problem with integration. They couldn't get all the things that they had bought set up in their system and be useful. They'd spent a lot of money on stuff that in our terms, rotted on the loading dock. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a lot of, hey, this works for corporate, um, mm-hmm. which is entirely Windows-based. It should work for you as well. And INT is entirely Linux-based. And you know a lot of those tools don't translate. But if, if they bring it up and like, they're like, why do you use tool X and not tool Y? Um, you know, we have like a, a good discussion on that. That's also a good green flag because, you know, you know, it's not like, oh, I only use this and this is the only thing I know. And I'm not willing to kind of relearn something or like kind of adjust myself around it. And the other thing is I'll always pose the question of give me some examples like of things that you've automated or scripted out because I'm huge into automating a lot of like just boring tasks. I don't want to sit around changing passwords or like, you know, doing these very mundane things day in, day out. Yeah, I have actually asked a similar question for analysts and stuff, which is which is like, tell me the coolest thing you ever you ever figured out. Oh, that, that is a good one. Yeah. Like, I, you know, brag to me, make it awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like, you know, like if, if they're completely fresh out, advice that I would give people to start working on before like you go and interview is, you know, virtualization is free. VirtualBox is free mm-hmm. to download. Um, you can yeah. download it, just download random Linux distros. Set up a web server, set up a DNS server, set up yeah. an email server. In yeah, yeah, Linux. Exactly. Pick your distribution, Red Hat slash Fedora slash CentOS. Uh, if you're only going to do one, just because that's so prevalent, Red Hat mm-hmm. RPM based distributions. But like, I'm a big fan of Debian. Ubuntu is Debian based. Um, do that. Um, free IPA, um, central authentication. You can run free IPA, basically Windows AD um, for free. Ansible for, uh, you know, central management for like pushing out playbooks and configuring systems. Like basically build an Ansible server, write a bunch of playbooks to configure um, a web server. After you've built your first one, you kind of know how it's done. Now go to Ansible, write a playbook that does everything you just did. Build up a brand new server, point Ansible at it and see if you can bring it up to be identical to the web server you just built. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because a lot of it, a lot of system administration stuff is that kind of reproducibility. And again, my security team has its own engineering team that does a lot of the Linux stuff specifically for our tools because we have to run things in a somewhat different manner than is run at the top of the network. Right, yeah, Um, yeah. Also, like there's Kali and I've been a blue team guy for a really long time. If you were going to go on the blue side rather than trying to really learn the pen test stuff, if if that doesn't like click with you, set up a PFSense firewall on your home network, set up security onion on your home network that there was, a, I, I keep forgetting the, the name of it, the DNS proxy that you were, that you were using. You're talking pile. Yes. Pie hole. That's the one. Those kinds of things are defensive engineering tasks. Even a DNS proxy that you might use as an ad blocker in your home network. That's the same technique that you would use on a corporate network to black hole DNS uh, resolution for indicators. You know, observing your observing your own network will get you someplace along the along the way. You will learn, like in Snort, there's how to tune some of the signatures, just some of the signature management stuff. Just looking up the signatures, getting some familiarity with how those signatures work and what you can figure out from there. 
Um, A big part of this stuff that I've had to deal with with Snort is about how to deliver those events to something useful. Mm -hmm. One of the projects that we're working on right now, we used some Python tools to translate the native U2 file, which has all the packet information along with all the signature information into JSON and then sending that to Splunk using their HTTP event collector. So we don't have to install Splunk on the sensor device right, yeah. or anything like that. Um, and we transit the JSON directly. And then Snort3 and Sericata will actually log directly into J- JSON, but you still need to transit that to your event collector. And I think one of the things that we that might be an outgrowth to that, we'll see if we end up spending some time on it, but we were really thinking about using that to deliver stuff into an AWS Dynamo database and then using that Dynamo database as a new backend for uh, a replacement to Snort's base, which was the the old antiquated analysis console that that folks use. And frankly, I still have an analyst that still have an analyst that uses it. He 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 won't let me uh, turn off the server <laughs> <laughs> because he's so used to it, and he's really sharp. So so like I'm 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 willing to give. But understanding the rule set to some degree, you'll have to like grow into to making your own rules. But all of the effort around detection and delivery of those events and tuning. Oh, I'm seeing a hundred million events on my home network of this thing. What the heck is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a there's a bad rule. What used to be a classic was uh, detection of um, of peer to peer networking LimeWire. Um, right. Right. Yeah. And because it detected based on the port and port alone, they've since fixed that signature, but that signature would always be hugely noisy on almost any network you'd put it on mm-hmm. because it was a bad signature. Um, right. Just troubleshooting that will have you learn, hey, this is what the signature was detecting for and figuring out what that really meant on your network. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I'll kind of wrap it up with um, like interview advice. Like what would, what would be top five or so tips that you would give uh, people like for interviewing? If you don't know the answer, say you don't know. Don't try and talk around it. Don't try and fool me. Mm-hmm. It works on some people. I would argue that those aren't the places you want to work. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I, like it's a, it's a self-identified, it's a self-identified thing. Look up who you're going to work for. If you get, if you get any indication of who, of what organization you, you're, you're, uh, you're interviewing for, do a little bit of background research on that on that stuff. Try and answer concisely. Look people in the eye. We're in a world where you don't necessarily have to wear a suit, but try and meet at least business the business casual um, workplace uh, dress standards. That means slacks, long sleeve, button up kind of stuff, kind of things. You know, shave where you're gonna shave. However, your facial hair goes. You know. The whole like presentability thing. Yeah, yeah. That shouldn't matter. Uh, or to some degree it shouldn't matter, but it does. And there's almost no way that people can deprogram themselves from judging you based on at least a moderate professional uh, appearance. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I'm covered in tattoos. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I get looks all the time uh, if I'm walking around base or something. People wondering, you know, why I look the way I do or like, you know, won't like dress the way I am or something like that, you know, and it, it's not too bad. I think nowadays tattoos are very um, common. I, and I'm not saying tattoos and piercings have absolutely hired folks that had some uh, aggressive stuff going on there, but there is 
I'm not even going to lie. There have been people who didn't meet what I thought were minimal hygiene standards. And that, that is, yeah, yeah. That's disruptive to a work environment. Mm-hmm. It's not just off-putting. It's disruptive to a work environment. And in a lot of places, you've got some client-facing stuff. The tattoos, hair color, earrings, gauges, piercings, whatever. But don't be wearing, you know, torn jeans or even jeans if that's not the, the standard for the dress code. And like, and this is a loosen up from a world that I came up in where as guys, we always wear a suit to an interview. Not necessarily work, in fact, rarely to work, but always to an interview. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think my number one is exactly like yours. Don't ever be afraid to say like, oh, yeah, I don't know that, but, you know, I want to learn that. Or I know a little bit about mm-hmm. this thing and don't go into it unless they actually ask you to to, to drill into it. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Limited, you have limited time and frankly, attention in an, inter- in an interview. And one of the things that will quickly get people off of my list, even if I like their resume a lot, is if they will try and talk around an answer in an effort to you know, not seem like they didn't know something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A real world example of that, uh, when I interviewed for the Snort team, they asked me if I knew uh, regular expressions. I was like, mm-hmm. I like very barely, like I think I've done it like twice. So I'm going to say no. And they were like, cool. So do you want to learn that? We spent two hours basically just like part of my interview. Um, yeah. Just kind of teaching regular expressions. And then they were like, okay, now do you feel like you knew you know them? And I was like, okay, well, like, yeah, now they're it's in my head. So I can answer these mm-hmm. questions. But and I've always been quick to admit, like, nope, don't know a thing about that, but you know, I'm willing to learn it uh, if you give me the chance. You don't need to be too wordy when you know if someone's asking you to describe certain protocols, how things work, you know, just try to be kind of concise, show that you know it. And even sometimes if you feel like the way they asked that question was kind of vague. Don't be afraid to ask them to clarify. Um, yeah. Like that can often be like I've seen in the interviews in the past month and a half asking someone to ask them a question and they'll kind of kind of be going down this rabbit hole. And it's like, oh, well, like, you know, just come, come back out. It, it was like a very simple kind of like, you know, one level deep sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like you said, just kind of, you know, like, you don't really need to wear suits in this day and age. Um, yeah. You know, if, especially for an entry level position, you know, like a polo slacks, that, that's totally fine. Yeah. That's acceptable. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. like a suit, unless you're interviewing for like a high level gig, is probably going to be detrimental because they're going to think you're, you're overdressed. You're trying to overcompensate for something. There are definitely places that I've worked at where it wouldn't have been weird, but I don't know that that, that, that it's as big a deal if you overdress, but it's definitely detrimental if you underdress. Yeah, I only, I only bring that up because I've, I've actually had that critique uh, thrown at me. Really? Yeah, that they they felt I was like too overdressed for the position. Um, like the technical knowledge was there, but they like they were like, yeah, like you kind of had us like wondering what was going on because um, you came in here like you know in a suit and tie and stuff like that. All right, I've never I've never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, you know if you are fresh out and you don't have much on your resume. Try to get some certifications on there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Security Plus, very easy one to kind of knock out. Your Network Plus, another easy one. These two CompTIA certs. I think CompTIA even has like a InfoSec cybersecurity thing. I, yeah, I don't know yeah, how great that plus. is. I don't know that it go that that it that that my problem is that it that that it doesn't go deep enough. I don't necessarily like where they concentrate things, but that's a yeah. personal opinion because I'm like I'm very network forensics. Like that's the core of my of my uh. And it's like, 
you, you can't describe how DNS works. Um, sorry, I know that that keeps coming up, but man, is it a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, like, like brush up on the basics. Know your OSI stack. Um, you know, like very, people will hit you with low hanging fruit questions. To yeah, see if they can I, trip you up. So two questions that I regularly ask are one, I'll give a subnetting question. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking to make sure you understand how subnets work. I, you don't necessarily need to have it like calculated in your head. Right. Um, and the other one is I will, we can end on this if you want. You have, you have a thousand firewall logs all from the same source. What are the, what are the uh, number of distinct destinations? Can you get a unique list of the destinations? And it's a thousand logs. You can't just do it by hand. Right. Right. Um, there's lots of ways of solving that. Excel is a perfectly valid solution, but like there's a bunch of ways of doing it in a Linux command line or with the scripting language. I don't care how you solve it, but that problem comes up a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Find out about new episodes of r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.